Let's just bow our hearts one more time as we come before his word. Father, we do thank you, Lord, for the joy and the privilege of being yours, of being able to come together as we do this day, Lord, to study your word, to sing praises to you, Lord, just to fellowship together with you at the center. And Father, as we now just turn to the scripture, Lord, just teach us, we pray. Lord, help us to see more of you. Lord, help us to fall in love with this book. And Lord, let it permeate our thinking in every area of our lives. Lord, we just give you this time now in Jesus' name. Amen. So last week we started a journey, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, through the book of Kings. Um, it's a great book. Lots of things will come out, as we mentioned last week. Um, very much a book that deals with failure. You know, with people that make all sorts of uh, good intentions and then stumble at the first hurdles and so on. And you know, we'll see our own lives reflected many, many times as we go through. But we also see some incredible examples of people that stood for God um, in the midst of a culture that was turning its back on God. <clears throat> so again, we looked last time, the, we're looking at this period of time, the history, um, really from the time of David, the end of David's reign is where the book of Kings starts, we saw last week, and Solomon enthroned, and then going on right, on right up until the time of the exile, when uh, first of all in 722 BC, the northern kingdom Israel is taken captive to Assyria, and then finally in 587 BC, uh, Judah is taken away captive to Babylon, and we'll see that as we go through. Um, the, the writing of the Bible really takes place from the time of the Exodus, um, that's when Moses first, as it were, puts pen to paper, um, and certainly seems to collate the accounts that we have. Genesis, uh, certainly a lot of it, it seems to be written by many of the characters. Adam, um, for example, seems to have recorded many of the things that we find in the early chapters, and Moses no doubt has had these records passed down, collates them and puts them into Genesis and so on. Um, and right up until about 90 AD uh, or 100 AD, the end of the close of the first century, where the book of Revelation then concludes scripture. And in that, we have everything. Everything we need to know about the past, everything we need to know about the future, everything we need to know about the present. So... <clears throat> Again, just focusing on the monarchy. As I said before, there were two prerequisites before Christ could come. One was the law, the other was the monarchy. The law had to be established because, as Paul tells us in the book of Galatians, it's the law that shows us that we're sinners. As Paul puts it, the law has confined all under sin. And so the law was a, a really important step in God's plan. And the other thing was the monarchy. God had already foreordained that there would be a throne. Now, Israel jumped the gun, they put Saul on the throne first. That never, did, never worked out as it should have done, um, or as Israel intended it to. But then eventually David is appointed as God's man. Um, prophetically, we can see that God had already ordained, uh, even before David had been born, that David was to be the man who would be the one that stood on this throne. And it's through David then that God establishes this everlasting kingdom. That ultimately the Messiah, the son of David, would come and sit on that throne. So a very important piece in the jigsaw of God's plan. So let's jump straight into chapter 3, which is where we kind of got up to last time. And we read chapter 3, verse 1. And Solomon made affinity with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and took Pharaoh's daughter and brought her into the city of David until he had made an end of building his own house and the house of the Lord and the wall of Jerusalem round about. Now, that building project just referred to there was a, a long program, and we'll see a lot of that as we go through the subsequent chapters, uh, looking at the things that Solomon did, the, the house that he made for himself. And ultimately, what we're going to see a lot of in the following chapters is the temple that Solomon builds. David had laid the plans. In fact, the Holy Spirit has given David the plans, and David then um, gets all the materials together, everything prepared for the building of this temple. And Solomon is the one then that puts it all into action and sees this incredible building built. But the first thing we're told here is about this relationship that Solomon has and then the, the resulting marriage with Pharaoh's daughter. Now, typically at that time, it was very common the kings uh, would have their children marry each other from opposing or from neighboring uh, kingdoms. It was kind of an alliance. It was supposed to be kind of a way of uh, securing peace between them. You, you'd be kind of affiliate with one another. But we see here the beginning of a slow fade for King Solomon. 
You see, the scripture had already made it very clear um, that the king was not to marry foreign wives. In fact, Jews themselves were not to marry foreign wives. You may be familiar with that song by Casting Crowns called Slow Fade. We played it once before at a service, I think. And there's just a lining in the song that just says, Daddies never crumble in a day. Families never crumble in a day. And maybe this morning we could add to that, the kingdoms never crumble in a day. You know, and it wasn't the end of Solomon's life that it all went horribly wrong. Right here at the beginning of his kingdom, he ends up marrying somebody that really he should not have done. Because it was going to be a problem for him. In fact, if we look forward in 1 Kings 11, we're told there, but Solomon loved many strange women. And notice what it says, together with the daughter of Pharaoh. This is the first one of these, these women that Solomon seems to set his eye upon, and this this foreign woman that he brings into his kingdom. So this daughter of Pharaoh is referenced here. Um, many strange women, together with the daughter of Pharaoh, women of the Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Zodanites, and Hittites, of the nations concerning which the Lord said unto the children of Israel, you shall not go into them, neither shall they come in unto you, for surely they will turn away your hearts after their gods. Solomon, clave unto these in love. Such a, a sad situation. And actually, I'm just going to go back because I had in my notes here um, that the Pharaoh that is believed to be the, the Pharaoh in question here is a uh, um, I think is the, the, not quite sure how you pronounce his name, uh, but of the Tanite dynasty. Um, and by all accounts, historically, he was a very weak Pharaoh. So there was no advantage in Solomon making a union with him. Now, for, for him, from his point of view, he would be very glad that his daughter was marrying Solomon at the time of the, the, Israel's kingdom was at its height. Um, but it was, there was no benefit whatsoever for Solomon entering into this kind of relationship. And, of course, we're told in Numbers 22 how Balaam is hired by Balak, um, the Moabite king to curse Israel and he tries all sorts of things he can't do it and eventually we find in Numbers 25 that Balaam was very crafty because what he told Balak to do was to put all the young girls on the front line near where the Israelis were camped and as a result of this many of the Israeli men entered into immoral relationships and that leads in Numbers 25 to 24,000 people dying of a plague you know an incredible just failure on Israel's part for not following God, for not being prepared to stay separate from the world. <clears throat> this verse in First uh, Kings 11 just carries on. It says, And he had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. Now, what was it last time we were looking at? About we should keep our hearts for out of it of the issues of life. Who was it that wrote that? Solomon. For it came to pass when Solomon was old, that his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not perfect with the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. You know, it's interesting, you look at David, you look at Solomon, you look at the crimes that David committed. He committed murder, adultery, you know, effectively theft, and you know, pretty much every one of the Ten Commandments you can list David as breaking. Solomon seems to come on the scene, and it's almost he's, he's got a very clean record. And yet David, we're told, was a man after God's own heart. David is this individual whom God seems to love because of the attitude of his heart. Even though David makes all sorts of mistakes. And again, you see how important the heart is. And again, that verse that Jared shared last time, last week with us, written by Solomon himself. Keep thy heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. You know, just having the head knowledge is not enough. Solomon had the head knowledge, he knew it, he was wiser than anybody. We're going to see uh, that brought out. But, you know... <laughs> He didn't live it. He didn't, it wasn't real to him in his life. You know, no doubt he was aware of the scriptures about not marrying foreign women and the dangers thereof. But he still went and made these mistakes. <clears throat> Verse 2 then tells us, Only the people sacrificed in high places because there was no house built unto the name of the Lord until those days. 
Now, of course, they'd had the tabernacle. The tabernacle had been this tent that um, the tail end of the book of Exodus, Moses is given the instructions for by the Lord. And then we see that that is eventually built and becomes this tent of meeting for the children of Israel all the time they're journeying in the wilderness. Eventually they come into the land and then God says that this place called Shiloh is the place where the tabernacle is to be located. And it stays there during the time of Eli and so on. But eventually it gets destroyed, um, seemingly by the Philistines, and then they're left with no place to go and offer their sacrifices. So typically the people wanted to offer their sacrifices to God. And so they go and take these high places as it's referred to here. We're going to talk about that a little bit more. Because verse uh, 3 um, carries on and says, And Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of David his father. Now that's great if it stopped there, but then it says, only he sacrificed and burnt incense in high places. So you actually see that the people offering their sacrifice and offerings in these high places, as it's referred to, was actually very much a result of the fact that the leadership of the nation was doing the same thing. So we're told, although Solomon loved God, walking in the statues of David, now you could make of that that he should have been walking in the statues of God, but whatever um, but we're told that Solomon himself then starts sacrificing and burning incense in high places now what's the, the problem with this well firstly we just point out that people will not grow beyond the spiritual climate that they live in I think that's an axiom that's fairly uh, well established if we look through scripture we can see examples of that and the people here don't grow beyond the, which their leadership, the monarchy as now is established, is at. You know, a nation can't exceed the righteous standard of the king. And here Solomon, because he is failing in this regard, ultimately the people are failing also. And we'll see why as we establish this. And I think it's true to say that a church will be defined by its pastor. And you, you look at churches that are, are blessed and are growing, and you should see there a pastor that is humble before the Lord. And of course there is a great responsibility on pastors to, to live their lives in a way that is honouring to God in every area of their lives. You know, and if the pastor is failing, then the church will fail. Uh, I think that's true. And I pray, and I would encourage you please to pray for me as a pastor, that we grow together in knowledge and grace. But we see a great example here of the people kind of really imitating uh, their king in what he's doing. Now, back in Deuteronomy, we're given some instruction about these high places. We're told, verse 2 of Deuteronomy 12, You shall utterly destroy all the places wherein the nations which you shall possess serve their gods upon the high mountains and upon the hills under every green tree. And you shall overthrow their altars and break their pillars and burn their groves with fire. And you shall hew down the graven images of their gods and destroy the names of them out of that place. So God makes it really clear that these places were places that the pagans had worshipped. There was no place for for God's people to go and be worshipping. Verse 5 of Deuteronomy 12 says, But unto the place which the Lord your God shall choose out of all your tribes to put his name there, even unto his habitation shall you seek, and thither shall you come. Now, again, ultimately that was to be the the temple in Jerusalem, but prior to that we have the tabernacle. As I say, the tabernacle becomes destroyed. And so the people, wanting to do something, decide they're going to try and serve God and worship God in their way. That's always a problem when we try and go to God in the way that we think is the right way or we think is the best way because ultimately it will only lead to problems. Now, it's interesting if you look through scripture, you'll find that the, the phrase high places is mentioned 98 times. Now, almost all of those times is a very negative uh, connotation in the context that they occur. There are a few occasions when God speaks and David speaks in Psalms of uh, walking in high places, but it's referenced there to uh, walking above circumstances very much in, in kind of the, the context. But almost all of these uh, references are references to places that were used for uh, pagan worship, demonic worship, and so on. Um, and we even have reference in the, the verse that Jared shared with us this morning um, about the, the, the things, again, the, that kind of high places type of idea. For certainly in Ephesians, that phrase high places occurs again, speaking of the principalities and powers. 
36 of those occurrences come in Kings. So this becomes a real issue throughout the book of Kings. And they were places of idolatrous worship, as we've already mentioned. And typically the ancient cultures worshipped the stars and the planets. This is why they went to the high places. Because it was the best vantage point, to look up at the stars and the planets. And so the high places were the optimum location, and so on. Now, again, just uh, as an aside, that was the reason for the building of the Tower of Babel. Now, it was, of course, partly to keep the people together, but the main principal reason for building a tower was so they could worship the stars and so on. Albert Barnes, in his commentary, says, uh, There were two reasons for the prohibition of high places. First, the danger of the old idolatry keep, keep creeping back in if the old localities were retained for worship. And secondly, the danger to the unity of the nation if there should be more than one legitimate religious centre. The existence of the worship at high places did, in fact, facilitate the division of the kingdom. And we'll see that as we go on. When we come to the end of Solomon's reign and his son Rehoboam takes over, and then this uh, other kind of pretender to the throne, Jeroboam, steps forward, Jeroboam establishes his own places of worship, again because of these high places. By now the people have become accustomed to them. And so we see how dangerous these things are when we allow the places that the world worships to become the places that we worship. <clears throat> Numbers 35 verse 52 says, Then you should drive out the inhabitants of the land from before you and destroy all their pictures and destroy all their modern images and quite pluck down all their high places. And again, there's a number of references you can find throughout the Torah uh, to the danger of these places. Now, we're familiar, of course, with the fact that the days of our week are all named effectively after pagan deities. And so it's very clear for us to understand that the ancient cultures all worshipped the sun, the moon, the stars. You know, Sunday, again, no question what that's in reference to. is the worship of the sun. Moon day, a day dedicated to the worship of the moon. And then we have Tuesday um, in old vernacular. And the, these all traced through various different ancient languages. Um, but that would be Mars day. Odin's Dag, which was Wednesday, would be Mercury's Day. Thor's Dag, uh, Thursday for us. Jupiter's Day. Friday Dag, uh, which was Venus's Day. And then Saturn's Day, okay, Saturday. So all of these planets, all these uh, things that we can observe with the natural eye, became things that the ancient cultures worshipped. Now, it's interesting, we looked at these uh, kind of ancient beliefs. The, the Talmudic literature and the Apocrypha both list seven archangels, uh, and the Talmud assigns these to the seven planets as guardians. Um, so we have the Sun, Moon, Mercury, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, and Venus. Uh, Samuel, one of these supposed archangels, was assigned the planet Mars. And so this becomes a place, the thing that's worshipped. Samuel was believed to be Satan. Again, this is according to the uh, Jewish Talmudic literature. Now, the planet Mars is very interesting because all ancient cultures feared Mars. That's something that you can just do a little bit of digging and see. The Roman god of war was Mars. Homer, uh, the Greek poet, describes um, uh, Mars or Ares as the bane of mortals. Now that's a strange thing to say. For most of us, you know, we look out at the night sky, you wouldn't even be able to identify which planet was Mars. And yet the ancient cultures were frightened of this planet. And they saw it as having supernatural power and so on. Um, <clears throat> the place in uh, Greece, in Athens, the Oropagus, which is where Paul ends up preaching to the Greek philosophers, Mars Hill. That's literally what it's called, Mars Hill. It was a, a place of debate and judgment and so on. Um, we've got the Epic of Gilgamesh. There's fragments of that in the British Museum. Blames Mars for the flood. But actually, you know, there may be more to this than just some quaint old stories. And we haven't got time to go into it. But just a quote from the Epic of Gilgamesh. Um, but it says, uh, But Enlil shall not come near to the offering, because without reflection he brought on the deluge and consigned my people to destruction. As soon as Enlil, this is the name for Mars, arrived and saw the ship, seemingly referring to the ark, Enlil was wroth. So just an interesting uh, kind of non-biblical reference but they believe that Mars was responsible for causing the flood uh, certainly this, this ancient piece of poetry 
in Psalm 18. We're given all sorts of strange things that we kind of read over and don't tend to think too much about. But then the earth shook and trembled. Now, is this just figurative? Are we just talking here, you know, in a kind of a, a spiritual sense or something? Or are these actually testimonies of things that took place? Then the earth shook and trembled. The foundations also of the hills moved and were shaken because he was wroth. Then went up a smoke out of his nostrils and fire out of his mouth devoured. Coals were kindled by it. He bowed the heavens also and came down and darkness was under his feet. And he rode upon a cherub and did fly. Yes, he did fly upon the wings of the wind. Now, it's very easy to us to try and dismiss or describe these things away. But there's so many of these scriptures. This just goes on and says, He made darkness his secret place, his pavilion round about him with dark waters and thick clouds of the skies. At the brightness uh, that was before him, the thick clouds passed, hailstones and coals of fire. The Lord also thundered in the heavens, and the highest um, gave his voice, hailstones and coals of fire. Yes, he sent out his arrows and scattered them, and he shot out lightnings and discomforted them. So many of these seemingly catastrophes implied in the ancient scriptures that we have. Behold, from Isaiah 24 verse 1, The Lord makes the earth empty and makes it waste and turns it upside down and scatters abroad the inhabitants thereof. Now, we have talked before, and maybe some other time in the future we'll go back and study again, but you look at things like the long day of Joshua. Now, there is this conjecture that Mars, at some point in its, uh, its history, used to pass, pass closer to the Earth than it did today. Now, that would potentially, uh, those that have studied this, they suggested would produce uh, not just earthquakes of very severe magnitude, but 85-foot crustal tides. We're not just talking about water here, we're talking about actually the crust of the earth moving. A polar shift of five degrees has been suggested that could actually have the effect of lengthening the day, which is what we read about in Joshua. We're told that meteorites were uh, in that particular situation as God was raining down on, God, on Israel's enemies. Um, but all of these kind of things, if Mars was coming closer, the gravitational effects and everything else could cause a meteor shower. It's been suggested meteorites coming in anything up to 30,000 miles an hour. Uh, now, if these things are true, and again, we need to be a little careful because there's a limit to what Scripture actually, actually reveals to us, but it does imply a lot of these things. And people that have gone on to study these things have come to some very interesting conclusions. So, whilst the ancient cultures worship these things, we may think it's ridiculous, but there may have been far more reason for them to worship or perceive for them to worship than we would maybe give credence and credit to. <clears throat> you see, the question though for us is what do the high places represent to us? How does this impact our lives? You know, and really it's anything that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. I, I didn't consult with Jared before Jared chose that verse of the week. Jared chose that, and I said to him this morning, how apt of, that, of all verses that one, because it fits so well with this particular thing that we're looking at at the moment. You know, those things that exalt themselves against the knowledge of God. Any form of idolatry in our lives, again, is a problem that we need to address. Is God number one? And as Chuck Mizzle often says, is God you know, number one? Not just you know, on, on a list of ten, but God wants to be number one on a list of one. You know, worshipping God in the way that suits us. This really was what the Israelites were guilty of here. Do we come humbly before him? You know, are we coming to God on our terms? You know, so many people want to come to God and worship God in the way that they want to. They want to call God by whatever name they want to. Well, the Bible makes it very clear that God is holy and we come to him on his terms. So... We have an issue, of course, there, right at the start of Solomon's reign, both with the, the marrying foreign wives and also this worshipping on the high places. Really, you're just putting yourself right in harm's way, where all this idolatrous worshipping has been going on. And we see these things later will bring Solomon down. But verse 4, we carry on. And the king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, for that was a, a, the great high place. A thousand but offerings did Solomon offer upon that altar. In Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night. Now it is interesting, there seems to be a pattern in scripture, that God will speak to his people in the place of sacrifice. Abraham is a great example of that. Abraham comes into the land, he offers sacrifice, God speaks to him. But then nothing. And eventually Abraham then built another altar, and sacrifices, and God speaks to him again. 
And it's almost, God will only speak at those times that we come humbly before him and in a place of sacrifice. And a similar situation here with Solomon. And we're told, and God said, ask what I shall give thee. Now this is to a 21 year old young man. That God is effectively saying, you know, you've got the throne already, you're the king of the nation. But ask anything. Now this is asking, you know, an unlimited God who has no bound to his resource. What would you like? You name it. wonder what we would say if we were put in that position. You see, for us it's easy in a sense because we know the account. We know what Solomon asked. But Solomon didn't know the account. He didn't know what was going to happen. He didn't know that God was going to give him all the other blessings alongside this, this that he asks. But we read, And Solomon said, Thou hast shown unto thy servant David my father great mercy, according as he has walked before thee in truth, and in righteousness, and in uprightness of heart with thee. And thou hast kept uh, for him this great kindness. Thou hast given him a son to sit on his throne, as it is this day. And now, O Lord my God, thou hast made thy servant instead uh, of King David my father. Um, And I am but a little child. I know not how to go out or come in. And thy servant is in the midst of thy people, which thou hast chosen, a great people, that cannot be numbered nor counted for multitude. Give therefore thy servant an understanding heart, to judge thy people, that I may discern between good and bad. For who is able to judge this thy so great a people? And the speech pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this thing. So, Solomon, incredible request, asking for wisdom, that he may govern God's people, recognizing that he's been given this incredibly privileged position, and obviously feeling very inadequate for the role. So he asked God for wisdom. He doesn't ask for riches or wealth or anything else. Just ask God for wisdom. And we're told quite clearly that it pleased God. But interestingly, if we contrast that to that which David asks, you see, Solomon here asks, in a sense, how do I do the job well? In Psalm 27, David there says, One thing I have asked, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. You see, David's heart wasn't that he did a good job. David wanted God. David wanted to know God. He wanted to dwell in the house of the Lord. You know, and for us, there's a danger that we can want to serve well. But do we really desire God himself? You know, some people have often talked about those in ministry and saying, you know, it's so easy to be busy in the service for the king that we actually forget about the king. And all of us in our lives, in our walks with the Lord, you know, we can try and do a good job. We can have our routine. We can get up at a certain time. We can spend our devotional time with the Lord in the morning. We can go about our day. We can make sure we speak to people about God. We can get home and we can tick everything on that list. But what about God? Do we really desire God himself? When we read God's word, are we just reading it because we know we should read it? And, you know, of course, I don't encourage you to read it just to read it. But are we wanting to meet with God? And I think the difference between David and Solomon is that Solomon genuinely wanted to do a good job for God. And he recognized that this was God's people. And it was a great request that he asked. But David's request was simply about knowing God. God said unto him, Because thou hast asked this thing, that thou hast not asked for thyself long life, neither hast thou asked riches for thyself, nor hast asked the life of thine enemies, but hast asked for thyself understanding to discern judgment, behold, I have done according to thy words, and lo, I have given thee a wise and understanding heart, so that there was none like thee before thee, neither after thee shall any arise like unto thee. And I have also given thee that which thou hast not asked, both riches and honour, so that there shall not be any among the kings like unto thee all thy days. And if thou walk in my ways to keep my statutes and my commandments as thy father David did, then I will lengthen thy days. And that's an interesting comment at the end, or or promise at the end, because there's an if there. If you walk in my ways to keep my statutes and my commandments as David thy father did, walk then I will lengthen thy days. In Psalm 90 verse 10, David says, 70 years are appointed to man. Solomon dies at the age of 61. He didn't even make 
the allotted time that is given to man because he didn't walk in God's ways toward the end of his life. You know, and that's such a sad thing because everything is set up so well for him here. You know, and what about us? You know, how is it in our lives? Do we have everything right externally? You know, what is going on in our hearts really comes back to the verse from last week. You know, we should guard our hearts. We're out of it are the issues of life. Such an important verse. <clears throat> and Solomon awoke, and behold, it was a dream. I couldn't help just wondering as I was just looking at this during the week whether Solomon thought, did that really happen? Whether Satan did his usual, did God really say? And I wonder how that impacted Solomon. Because it's interesting that we're told here, Solomon awoke, and behold, it was a dream. And he came to Jerusalem and stood before the ark of the covenant of the Lord and offered up burnt offerings and offered peace offerings and made a feast to all his servants. And then we move on. One of the great examples of Solomon's wisdom. Then came there two women that were harlots unto the king and stood before him. And the one woman said, Oh my Lord, I and this woman dwell in one house and I was delivered of a child with her in the house. And it came to pass the third day that after I was delivered, that this woman was delivered also. And we were together. There was no stranger with us in the house, save the two in the house. So both of these ladies were pregnant. They both give birth within three days of each other. And this woman's child died in the night because she overlaid it. Seemingly rolled across, smothered it inadvertently in her sleep. And she rose at midnight and took my son from beside me. While thine handmaid slept, and laid it in her bosom, and laid her dead child in my bosom. And when I arose in the morning to give my child suck, behold, it was dead. But when I had considered it in the morning, behold, it was not my son, which I did bear. She realizes that this woman has swapped the children. And the other woman said, Nay, but the living child is my son, and the dead is thy son. And this said, Nay, but the dead is thy son, and the living is my son. Thus they spoke before the king. So this kind of little argument ensues before the king, as they're debating his point. Then the king said, The one that says, This is my son that liveth, and thy son uh, is the dead. And the other saith, Nay, but thy son is dead, and my son is the living. And the king said, Bring me a sword. And they brought a sword before the king. And everybody a little bit curious as to what's going to happen next. And the king said, Divide the living child in two, and give half to the one, and half to the other. You can imagine the looks on the faces of people in the court, as this is pronounced. But then spoke the woman whose the living child was, the real mother, unto the king. For her bowels yearned upon her son, and she said, Oh my lord, give her the living child, and in no wise slay it. But the other said, Let it be neither mine nor thine, but divide it. Then the king answered and said, Give her the living child, and in no wise slay it. She is the mother thereof. Solomon realized so clearly that the mother that was saying, No, please don't kill the child. That was the real mother of the child. And We read verse 28, And all Israel heard of the judgment which the king had judged, and they feared the king, for they saw that the wisdom of God was in him to do judgment. Just this young man, we're not sure how early this is in his career, but again, 21, 22 years old seemingly at this point. Um, right at the beginning of his, his ministry. And people just kind of taking a step backwards, thinking, wow, I wouldn't have thought of that. But God giving Solomon the wisdom that he promised. Moving on into chapter 4, we read, So Solomon was king over all Israel. And these were the princes which he had, Azariah, the son of Zadok the priest, um, Elihoreph, uh, Ahiah, the son of, uh, I'm going to mispronounce all of these, but if you want to mispronounce them when you get home, you're welcome to have a go yourself. Uh, Shishar, scribes, Jehoshaphat, son of uh, Ahilud, the recorder, and Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was over the host, and Zadok and Abithar were his priests. Now, those individuals we saw last time, we saw them come to prominence, partly because of their support for Solomon uh, and this whole uh, situation with the Donijar, uh, Solomon's half-brother that we saw last time. So now these, again, are the ones that are appointed to these positions. And we're told, uh, Azariah, the son of Nathan, was over the officers, and Zabud, the son of Nathan, uh, was principal officer and the king's friend. It's kind of a nice comment to be added. Uh, and Ahisar was over the household of Adonirain, 
and the son of Abdur was over the tributes. And Solomon had 12 officers over all Israel, which provided victuals for the king and his household. Each man, his month, in a year made provision. So basically, 12 individuals then are appointed, and each of them have a month throughout the year where it's their job to provide for the king's household. Everything that the king needs, um, all the provision and so on. It was their responsibility. They had a month each. Now, we're given the list of names. Um, and rather than me read through those, I'm going to take you to a, a map, which make it a little bit easier to see. Now, these will be in the notes. And if you want to read through that at your leisure, you're more than welcome to. But you're given the details here of every area that they have. So they were spread throughout Israel. So these 12 individuals that Solomon appoints, and each one of them has the responsibility in their particular month of the year to provide for the king's house. And that's what we're given there. And... uh, Yes, so, so those are those 12 individuals and the districts and so on that they looked after. And it was their responsibility to grow the produce to make sure that everything that the king needed was there. So again, those will be in the notes. You can have a look at that at your leisure. So we pick up verse 21. And Solomon reigned over all kingdoms from the river unto the land of the Philistines and unto the border of Egypt. So the river is talking about there. You know, the world often speaks about the West Bank, doesn't it? But of course... The West Bank, as far as Scripture is concerned, is the West Bank of the river Euphrates. Because that's the extent of the land that God has given to Israel. And so, from the river Euphrates, is the river in question, that's the one that's promised to um, Abraham in Genesis 15. Unto the land of the Philistines, and unto the border of Egypt. That's right down the south. Uh, And they brought presents and served Solomon all the days of his life. So all these other nations are putting tribute unto Israel. And Solomon's provision for one day was 30 measures of fine flour and threescore measures of meal. An abundance of things you're going to see listed here. Ten fat oxen. So that's the kind of uh, for the for the steaks and the burgers and things. Uh, Twenty oxen out of the pastures and a hundred sheep beside harts and roebucks and fallow deer and fatted fowl. Uh, for he had dominion over all the region on this side of the river, uh, from uh, Tifsha even to Azza, over all the kings on this side of the river, uh, and he had peace on all sides round about him. So this. Kingdom is becoming established. And Judah and Israel. Now once again, mark there that we have a distinction between Israel and Judah. Now that will really come into play, of course, when we get to the division of the kingdom. But at the moment, already there is a distinction between Judah, which is where Jerusalem is located, where the king is, and then Israel, which really is the other tribes around about. But Judah and Israel dwelt safely, every man under his vine and under his fig tree, from Dan even to Bathsheba all the days of Solomon. Now one other thing just to mention, of course, is that um, we're not sure who wrote Kings. There are some that suggest Jeremiah was the author. Others suggest that Ezra could have been the author. And so maybe this is why here we have this reference to Judah and Israel, because they're looking back with the benefit of history, aware that there's been a division in the kingdom. So it doesn't necessarily imply that there was a a, a division at that time. Um, But just to, to highlight that. So... But this idea of Dan to Bathsheba, sorry, Dan to Beersheba, um, not Bathsheba, Beersheba, um, Dan were originally given this portion of land here on the coast of the Mediterranean, okay, not far away. You've got Jerusalem in here uh, and then this area of land. But Dan complained. That which God had given, they said, wasn't enough. They weren't set, with a, set content with the boundaries that God had set. They wanted more. And there's a big lesson there for us to be content with the things that God gives us because they end up having this piece of land up the top there, which is such a dilly piece of land, but they go, well, that's it, we're happy now. Which really doesn't make any sense because this is such a bigger bit of land. But anyway, and they were the first tribe to go off into idolatry. And so there's lots of lessons you can draw, draw from that. But when we read the scripture from Dan to Beersheba, we're talking about from the north to the south. So Beersheba right down the bottom here. This place of seven wells we read about in the time of Abraham. Um, so this uh, whole idea when we read from Dan to Beersheba is really from the north of the country down to the south of the country. <clears throat> and then we read, and Solomon had 40,000 stalls of horses for his chariots and 12,000 horsemen. And those officers provided victual for the king, uh, for King Solomon, of all that came unto King Solomon's table. Every man in his month, they lacked nothing. So the men that we've just been looking at, the 12 districts, uh, they were providing 
um, for the, the king, everything he needed. Now, I've highlighted that verse 26 because we are told that this is a scribal error. Now, anybody who knows me will know that I don't like comments like that because I don't think we have scribal errors in the Bible. And I want to just examine this and see what conclusion we come to. Now, the reason it is suggested that this is a scribal error is because if we look at the, a similar verse that occurs in the book of Chronicles, uh, we see, this goes on, from 2 Chronicles 9.25, And Solomon had 4,000 stalls for horses and chariots and 12,000 horsemen whom he bestowed in the chariot cities and with the king at Jerusalem. So the difference here, let me just go back to the previous verse, you notice 40,000 is given to us in Kings, but we're told in Chronicles, 4,000. Now, if we look, what we find is um, a comment such as this. Now, Albert Barnes, a a commentator, a scholar who I deeply respect, I often use uh, his notes and study in preparing, but he says, a number in the present passage... Is pro- sorry, the number in the present passage is probably a corruption. Now, he's referring to the passage in Kings that we're looking at. Hinson Kroll, in their commentary, um, produced by Nelson, um, it says 40,000 is evidently an error in copying because a parallel passage, 2 Chronicles 9.25, indicates that Solomon had 4,000 stalls of horses, a more suitable number. And that seems to be the idea, that, oh, 40,000, too many, so let's go for the, the smaller number, that's far more realistic. Adam Clark, another commentator who I deeply respect, is very, very good. We may rest satisfied that there is a corruption in the numbers somewhere. Now the problem is, we've become victim to so many people that have quite happily jumped upon this idea of, oh, there may be a problem here or there, or there's an error, and it's a, it's a problem with a, a scribal you know, um, emendation or a, a, a smudge or something, or cracked manuscripts, or all sorts of other things I've heard said over the years. So let's look at this. <clears throat> what the apparent correction, we're told, is this. Um, and a number of modern translations will translate it this way. Solomon had 4,000 stalls for chariot horses. Now that's the way that the modern translations typically will translate 1 Kings 4.26. And so in Chronicles, Solomon had 4,000 stalls for horses and chariots. That's great. So now it's all reconciled, we can move on and not worry about it. Except can we? Because if we look at what actually is said here, are we to assume from this corrected rendering that Solomon has just one horse per chariot? What about the 12,000 horsemen that we're told about? You see, look at that one from Kings again, the the top one. Solomon had 4,000 stalls for chariot horses. Okay, and the second one says, Solomon had 4,000 stalls for horses and chariots. It's not saying the same thing for a start. Again, 12,000 horsemen, where were their horses to have been kept? If you've only got 4,000 stalls, you see, we've got a problem. And that's when we try and help God out, it usually causes a problem. And Abraham and Ishmael are one of the best examples in Scripture of that, but there are many more. Whenever we try and help God, because we don't understand something, we normally make a hash of it. So let's just go back to Scripture and see. Now, the first thing I'd like to point out, just looking at the Hebrew text here, we actually find that there are two differences in the wordings here. It's not just one word that's different. It's actually two words that are different. It's the word regarding the chariots, but also the word regarding the 40,000 40, or the 40, depending on the Kings or the Chronicles. So are we suggesting that we've actually got two scribal errors occurring in just five words? Now, I would, before we move on, just remind you of what Scripture itself says of itself. Psalm 12, verse 6 and 7 says, The words of the Lord are pure words, as silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. Thou shalt keep them, O Lord, thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. Do we believe it? Do we believe that God is going to preserve his word from that generation forever? Do we believe that all Scripture is God-breathed? What about Romans 3, 1 and 2? We're told there, Paul speaking, what advantage then has the Jew or prophet? Is there a circumc- of circumcision? And Paul says, much in every way, chiefly, the most important reason and the greatest blessing that the Jews have is because that unto them were committed the oracles of God. 
He's talking about scripture. To the Jews were committed scripture. Now did God make a mistake committing it to people that couldn't quite copy it properly? Let's just look a little bit about what the Jews did when they copied scripture. The Talmud lists more than a dozen rules for copying the Torah. And these rules are typically followed throughout all of scripture. So we've got a kind of a built-in security system, if you like. And even if just one of these factors is lacking, it doesn't possess the sanctity of a Torah scroll. It's not to be used for public Torah reading. Now again, this is specifically regarding the Torah, but the Jews have the same approach to all their scripture. So the meticulous process of hand-copying a scroll takes about 2,000 hours. That's kind of a full-time job for a year, to hand-copy a Torah scroll. Throughout the centuries, Jewish scribes have adhered to the following guidelines. Firstly, the parchment must be made from the skin of a clean animal. Clean meaning ceremonially clean according to the Old Testament laws. It must be prepared by a Jew only. The skins must be fastened together by strings taken from clean animals. Each collar must have no less than 48 and no more than 60 lines. The entire copy must first or must be lined first or first line so lines on it a Torah scroll is disqualified if even a single letter is added a Torah scroll is disqualified if even a single letter is deleted the scribe must be a learned pious Jew who has undergone special training and certification all materials the parchment the ink the quill whatever uh, must conform to strict specifications and must be prepared specifically for the purpose of writing a Torah scroll Scribe may not write, sorry, must not write even one letter into a scroll by heart. So you're not allowed to go by memory. Rather, he must have a second kosher scroll open before him at all times. The scribe must pronounce every word out loud before copying it from the correct text. Every letter must have sufficient white spaces surrounding it. If one letter touched another in any spot, invalidates the entire scroll. Now you just imagine getting right to the end. And like, that's a year's work gone. If a single letter was so marred that it cannot be read at all or resembles another letter, whether the defect is in the writing or is due to a hole, a tear or a smudge, this invalidates the entire scroll. Each letter must be sufficiently legible so that even an ordinary school child could distinguish it uh, from other similar letters. The scribe must put precise space between the words so that one word will not look like two words or two words look like one word. The scribe must not alter the design of the sections, must conform to particular line lengths and paragraph configurations. The ink must be of no other colour than black and must be prepared according to a special recipe. He must reverently wipe his pen each time before writing the word for God or Elohim. He must wash his whole body before writing the name Jehovah or Lord as it's translated in the King James Version where you have a capital O, capital, capital L, capital O, capital R and capital D lest the name, the holy name be contaminated. Now there are some passages in scripture where you'll find God's name, Jehovah, appears repeatedly. So I guess on that day he was very clean. Each Hebrew letter has a numerical value. Each column when completed must be added up and be the exact numerical value as the scroll you are copying from. Each page must also add up numerically. The revision to correct any errors of a roll must be made within 30 days after the work was finished, otherwise it was worthless. And one mistake on a sheet condemned the entire sheet. If uh, three mistakes were found on any page, the entire manuscript was condemned. You see, one of the critics' favourite challenges is, you can't trust the Bible, it's changed over time. And they say this, well we've got 304,805 letters in the Torah. How many errors do you think have crept in in 1900 years? Well, one prominent Jew at a seminar made this statement. They said, the fact is that after all the trials, the tribulations, the communal dislocations and persecutions, only the Yemenite Torah scrolls contain any difference from the rest of the world Jewry. For hundreds of years, the Yemenite community was not part of the global checking system. And a total of, are you ready for this? Nine letter differences are found in their scrolls. Nine letters in nearly 2,000 years. And it says these are all spelling differences. In no case do they change the meaning of the word. 
So do we really think we've got scribal errors? We need to be very careful before alleging such things. Now let's look, again this is just looking at the, the King James text. Verse 26 says of 1 Kings, And Solomon had 40,000 stalls of horses for his chariots and 12,000 horsemen. So let's look first of all, we've got stalls of horses. That's the number that's being referenced. 40,000 stalls of horses that are for his chariots, and then we're told, and 12,000 horsemen. So the stalls of horses are for his chariots and the horsemen. So that's what we're told. And then we look at the verse in Chronicles, and Solomon had 4,000 stalls, four horses and chariots. Very, very different in the information that these two are giving us. See, Kings gives the total number of stalls for the horses. Chronicles gives us the number of combined stalls that were able to accommodate horses and chariots. Now, as an aside, 40,000 stalls for the king's horses is by no means improbable. Uh, the Philistines in the war at Mishmash, uh, with, um, when, this is when David comes out with Goliath and, and uh, all of this, um, uh, were put into the Sorry, no correction, it's not when David comes out, it's prior uh, to that uh, battle. But it's a battle that Solomon's uh, fighting with the Philistines. But we're told there in 1 Samuel 13 um, that there were, the Philistines had 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen. Now, Solomon's kingdom exceeded anything that had gone before it. So is it improbable? No, not at all. <clears throat> Again, looking at another verse in Kings, this is later on in chapter 10. Solomon gathered together uh, chariots and horsemen. And he had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horsemen, whom he bestowed in the cities for chariots and with the king at Jerusalem. So... What we're told is that Solomon actually had 1,400, 1,400 chariots. He also had 12,000 horsemen. Okay, and it's reasonable to assume that he had horses for each of the horsemen, otherwise they would have very quiet days. And it's reasonable to assume that he has horses for those chariots, and probably at least two horses per chariot. Looking in Chronicles, another passage in Chronicles, 2 Chronicles 1.14, Solomon gathered chariots and horsemen, and he had 1,400 chariots, the same number, 12,000 horsemen, the same number. But then we're also told, which he placed in the chariot cities and with the king at Jerusalem. That's an important point. Because what we find here is that we've got these stalls that would have been there for the horsemen and for the chariots and so on, spread across at least three locations. So we've got, because it says chariot cities, plural, that must be at least two, and with the king at Jerusalem which is our third location. Now, probably there were more. We'll talk about that in just a moment. You see, if Solomon had four cities, including Jerusalem, which is very probable, and there's a scripture that would allude to that anyway, um, and he's got 40,000 stalls for horses divided among those four cities, it means that each city could house 10,000 stalls for horses and 1,000 stalls that he would then be able to put chariots in as well as horses in. Okay? Now, interestingly, that wouldn't be enough for him to put his entire fleet of 12,000 horses and 1,400 chariots at any one side at one time. But it would allow effective movement of his military. I'll explain that in a little more clearly in a moment. You see, how many horses did Solomon have anyway? Well, if he's got 12,000 horsemen, and we assume at least two horses per chariot, then somewhere in the region of at least 14,800. And that's only assuming two. It's reasonable also to assume that Solomon would have had spare horses so as to allow, again, effective movement of his military, more stalls than horses and chariots would be required. Let me explain this to you in a way that we may understand. Some of you may be familiar with the Boris bike. Okay? If you ever go to London, you'll see the Boris bike. They look something like that. And there's lots of them in London, and people go and they kind of pay a few pennies and they ride from A to B and then they park it at the other end. Now, you must have more docking stations, stalls, if you like, than bikes. Or you'd never be able to park your bike at your destination. Now, one of the funniest things I've seen is people, when they're late for work, getting to a docking station and finding that actually it's already full up with Boris bikes and they can't now park their bike. And if they can't park their bike, they carry on paying for it throughout the day. So they then have to cycle around until they can find another docking station that's empty and then they can park their bike. So you see, you need more stalls than you have bikes or horses. Okay? If there were one... Horse on reserve, a spare. For every horse on duty, 
then, which is not improbable, there would already be 29,600 horses. And so 40,000 stalls would have been a reasonable number to accommodate this many horses. And chariots of that era would typically be uh, pulled by up to four horses anyway. Depending on the purpose of the chariot, some chariots would have two horses, they would be very quick and nimble in battle, others would have four, some could have even more. Um, interestingly, quote, this is actually in Mein Kampf by Adolf Hitler, I don't believe it's his quote originally, but he said, for a country to gain her ends by force, she must be strong. For a country to gain her ends by diplomacy, she must be twice as strong. Now, ignoring the, the source of the quote, it's actually a very valid point, that for a country to become strong through diplomacy, they need to be strong. And Solomon's empire was strong. Very, very strong. So these things that we find here really shouldn't surprise us. Now at Megiddo, we've uncovered, or they've uncovered, the remains of many of the stalls that would have been used for the horses. Now, Megiddo seems to have been one of those cities. There, you can just about see this is a a feeding trough, or water trough, uh, no doubt, for the horses that was used. Uh, And so again, this has all been discovered. Um, Megiddo's foremost mission... In the Israelite period, one commentator said, was to train horses for battle. So this is one of these uh, cities, clearly. It said in 1 Kings 9.15 that Solomon built the cities of Hatzor, Giza, and Megiddo. And these may well have been used as chariot cities. So, again, at least three others, that, uh, with Jerusalem as well, they've got at least four cities. There could have been even more than that. You see, a final thought before we kind of move on and close. Solomon may have also used ten horses per chariot. Now, there are some records to suggest uh, that at that time, some of the um, horses, some of the chariots would have been up to ten. Now, probably for battle, that would have been too many. But Solomon may well have had some of these chariots would have required ten horses for ceremonial purposes, for regal things. Anytime he went out, he may well have had this kind of thing. But even on that, that basis, if you've got 1,400 chariots, if they were all that way, you need 14,000 horses to pull them. Um, plus your 12,000 horsemen, that's 26,000. Whichever way you cut this, there's no problem with the numbers that are given to us. Okay? And interestingly enough, it also may account for the exact multiple of stalls for horses being 10 times that for chariots. Maybe Solomon did use 10 for each of the chariots. But whatever he did, there really isn't a problem. And certainly we've got lots of examples of four horse-pulled chariots um, from that kind of era. In fact, we've got uh, the first one here, this is in Brussels, that's on top of the Arc de Triomphe in Paris, and that, you may be familiar, is the Wellington Arch in London. Again, chariots four pulled by four horses. Um, there really is no problem with the biblical text. The problem, as always, is people don't read it. And then people come to a conclusion, based upon their ignorance, and they'll say the Bible's wrong. So the point of all of that is to encourage you not to go with these people that say it's a scribal error, it's a mistake in the Bible. I don't believe there are mistakes in the Bible. I believe there's a number of areas where we have yet to understand. And we will go through it. And interestingly enough, there are loads of these that will come across in Kings. And it will be good fun to go through and to put them to rest and to show you that the Bible is reliable. It's trustworthy. And you need to know it's trustworthy because it's the book that tells you about your salvation. And you need to be certain about that. It's not an area that we can have any doubts on whatsoever. So to conclude, we're told also that barley also and straw for the horses and the dromedaries uh, brought they unto the place. So these are the, these people, those 12 cities we looked at earlier on, uh, where the officers were, every man according to his charge. And God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding exceeding much and largeness of heart even as the sand that is on the seashore. That uh, largeness of heart, Chuck Minister says, is from a Hebrew term meaning breadth of mind. His understanding was vast. And today uh, he might be described as a man of encyclopedic knowledge. That's what that seems to imply. As Solomon's wisdom excelled the wisdom of all the children of the East Country and all the wisdom of Egypt. For he was wiser than all men. Than Ethan, the Ezrathite, and Heman, and uh, Chalcol, and Darda, and the sons of Mahol, and his fame was in all nations round about. And he spoke 3,000 proverbs. Now we've got some of those proverbs recorded in the book of Proverbs. But we're told, and his songs were a thousand and five. And he spoke of trees from the cedar tree that is in Lebanon, even unto the hyssop that springs up out of the wall. He spoke also of beasts and of fowl and of creeping things and of fish. And they came of all people to hear the wisdom of Solomon from all the kings of the earth 
which had heard of his wisdom. So God establishes Solomon with the wisdom that he promised. And we'll see that again come out yet further next week. Let's bow our hearts. Well, Father, we thank you again for your word. We thank you that it is true. We thank you that we can trust it, we can depend upon it. And whatever it tells us, and Lord, particularly the important things regarding our salvation, your love for us, the fact that our eternity is sealed, we can be absolutely certain of. And Father, we thank you too for the warnings we see in Scripture. Lord, we see how Solomon went and worshipped on the high places, putting himself in those places where idolatry had been rife, by allowing himself to worship foreign wives. And Father, help us to guard our own hearts, to recognise, Lord, that there are battles going on in these high places. And Lord, there are principalities and powers that would seek to destroy us. And so, Father, help us to bring every thought captive in obedience to you. And Lord, checking again the motives, the intents of our own hearts, knowing that out of them spring the issues of life. So, Father, guard our hearts, we pray, by your grace. And we'll keep our eyes upon Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. For we ask it in his name. Amen.